Hello, and welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. I'm your host, Ryan Stanton. Regular listeners may note that I'm not the usual host, Daniel Kubarek. But don't worry, I'm not a stranger. I've actually been working as an editorial assistant at Signs for the past few months, writing a lot of articles, which you can exclusively read on our website, signsofthetimes.org.au. I think they're pretty good, so you might want to check them out. I'm also actually doing a PhD studying podcasts, so I hope that you're in safe hands. We've got a great episode today, which is looking at the topic of one of my first articles for the site. The question, what is justice? It's a difficult topic with a lot of interesting angles. So let's just dive right in. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Welcome back to another episode of Signs of the Times Radio. My name is Ryan Stanton, and it is my great pleasure to introduce a guest today that some of you might be familiar with, Pastor Eddie Hippolyte. Eddie, <coughs> can you tell us a bit about yourself? I am a Londoner, born and bred. I've been living in Australia now for eight years. I came here to work as a minister at Avondale University, the newly minted <laughs> Avondale um, University. I, I have been a pastor for 18 years. The past three years, I have been in consultancy. I, I run a resilience and leadership consultancy. And as of late, we were kind of, kind of turned our hands and turned our speciality towards diversity and inclusion. All right, that's wonderful. It's really great to have you on because today we're talking about a difficult topic that some might consider difficult. It's a little bit contentious at times. I wrote an article for the magazine about it, and when I was asked to do a podcast episode, I thought, Eddie, will be great to speak on this, and this is, of course, the topic of justice. There's a lot of different angles and ideas to consider around justice and what justice is, but to start, I think a good place might be to just ask you, what does justice mean to you? Justice is the implementation, not just of equality, but equity. Justice is even-handedness. Justice is anti-cancel, cancel culture. Justice is seeing that right is established as the norm. Justice is fairness. Justice is not just calling people to account for, for the wrong that they do. In my mind, justice is about establishing, establishing constructs where, where people actually choose to live peaceably and choose to live equitably with with their neighbours and, and with their fellow human beings. That's what justice is for me. So you've got a lot of concepts there, and we're going to be diving into a lot of them, especially in regards to what you think justice is. I think one of the most interesting things there that I want to start with is what you said justice isn't. Justice isn't righting wrong sort of thing in a sort of reactive way, it felt like the the implication was there. Mm, justice isn't only. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Justice yeah, is yeah, only yeah. that. Yeah, calling, punishing criminals. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's interesting because that is what I feel is the most prevalent form of justice that we see in discussions of justice and sort of depictions 
of justice in our culture. This mm-hmm. is a this is a type of justice that's sort of known as retributive justice. Mm-hmm. This idea is sort of that people look at as the idea of justice as revenge. You can mm-hmm. see this in many different cases. You see it in the law a lot. For example, a lot of people talking about in the sentencing, in the case of the murder of George Floyd, Derek Chauvin getting 22 and a half years, they refer to that as him getting what he deserved. That sort mm-hmm. of justice. And then you also see it in the stories we tell, you've got obvious stories like, you know, your action movies like John Wick, where it's all about getting revenge for the wrong that has been committed to them, or last year's Oscar winner, which I loved, Promising Young Woman, which is, again, a very similar thing, revenge on those that have wronged somebody's friend, but also... Mm older stories. A lot of Shakespeare tales have, you know, elements of of revenge and retribution to them, and even some older Bible stories. The question I sort of want to ask about this type of justice is, why do you think that this is so prevalent in our culture? Well, because we're messed up human beings. We're very self-preservationists. That type of justice is easy to go to because what it does is it separates us also from the conditions that sometimes creates acts of crime or creates acts of murder or it creates situations in which people do harm to other people. And so it's it's easier to just deal with their actions than deal with the conditions that create those actions. And so it's easy to just go to retributive justice. We create narratives that determine that they are, <laughs> they are, they, that they are deserving. That one group is deserving of what comes to them, but without engaging with what is it that has led to them being in the condition that they are. It's easy just to stay at a distance from everybody else and just make sure that where we are is safe and make sure that me and mine are good. Make sure that our environment is cared for and without any without any thought for our neighbor. So retributive justice plays into that because we don't have to engage what it is that creates that. So I think the flip side to why is it so prevalent that I might ask is what are the problems that might come from when we view justice solely through this retributive lens? Well, the problems that will come through it is that we will create policies, we will create laws, we will create theologies, we'll create sociologies and anthropologies and pseudoscience. We'll just create wider narratives that drive crazier and crazier ways in which we justify not engaging people's lives. The wider implication is that we'll create policies that end with one man murdering another man in front of us and that man begging for his life and and the man is doing the murder or is committing the murder is sworn to protect and serve the person that is murdering while three other officers help him do that help him commit that that's the wider implication the wider implication is that we will create social inequities um so that wealth isn't distributed properly we'll create social inequities so that one group of people benefit and the other people don't and another group of people don't benefit and i'm not trying to sound like I'm a socialist or, or anything or a communist or, or whatever I'm sounding like. It, that is just the reality. That is just the reality. We create wider narratives and then we enforce those narratives with policy. We enforce those narratives with political ideas and with social ideas and philosophical ideas so that we simply don't engage our fellow human beings and don't engage the conditions that contribute to, to them being who they are. I think we're going to dig into a lot of that stuff 
in in a bit, and I think that the idea of retributive justice will sort of continue to weave through this. But before mm. we do sort of move on to the next type of justice that I want to discuss, I I have to ask: Is there a place for retributive justice at all in of course, uh, the forms of, of justice? Of course, of course, people have to be called to account. People have to be called to account for their behavior. You know, in the Caribbean, we say, "If you can't hear, you must feel." If you can't hear, you got feel. Yeah, people have to be called to account. You know, there has to be, yeah, retributive justice. Yeah, this is what you do. This is the result. You know, in England, they say, if you can't, if you can't do the time, don't do the crime. So there has to, but even within that retributive justice, is there any work going to be done with them while they are incarcerated? Is there any work going to be done with them as to why it is they are constantly, you know, I always, when I go into prisons and I talk with prisoners, I always say to them, listen, crime, drugs, violence and jail isn't a life that you're sentenced to. It's a lifestyle that you're trapped in. So are we going to do the things necessary to help him then break that lifestyle so that they can actually engage in just a better quality of life and be better citizens and be better human beings and be much more productive human beings? Yeah, there is a place for retributive justice. But how are we going to help that person who is now suffering under that justice? How are we going to help them to realign their life? I I really like that approach. I I think oftentimes we hear people talking about it being either a lifestyle you choose or a sentence that is forced on you. And I think that idea of being trapped, I think, feels more true to it than uh, some of the other polarizations. I think it also gets to the idea of the next type of justice that I want to talk about, which is procedural justice. And this is, for those that don't know, the idea of justice where the focus is on making sure that the procedures and laws which define and rule our life or our lives they treat everybody equally. I I think this is the sort of justice where modern society is quite contested and that there's a lot of debate. You know, you said earlier, I don't want to sound like a socialist when I'm talking like this. It's not necessarily just two sides, but you sort of have a lot of people that view those who talk about this justice as, you know, socialists or social justice warriors. And then you have the others who say, no, actually, even if the laws don't explicitly state things, they might have some inequality in them. My question is, why do you think that this is the form of justice that gets so polarized in today's society? I think it it gets polarized because we don't want to be honest and we don't want to be open about whether or not those laws, they are administered equitably, whether or not they are administered equally. I mean, in the Northern Territories, what was it, 2019 statistic? The Northern Territories, 99% of young people that are in youth detention, 99% of young people are from Aboriginal First Nation backgrounds. Think about that number, 99%. So are we saying that Aboriginal young people are born with a criminal gene? Are they born with a proclivity towards breaking the law? Well, of course they're not. Well, if they're not, that means that that is an intentional, that means that they are intentionally being policed that way and they are intentionally being processed through the criminal justice system that way that means there's intention in that because there's, there's there there is no way that 99% 99% of all young people in youth justice detention in the, there's no way that it, it that it can be an actual statistic 
it means that the law that governs everybody is being administered differently to a, a different other group. And I think that's why it becomes polarized. We don't want to have that conversation, you know, but I think if you chase the data, the data will tell you different stories. And I don't know what all the data is presently. I don't have it to hand other than recounting that figure that I read within the newspaper. But I think the reason why it becomes polarized, because you have different people who see the upholding of of laws and, and policies and who they affect, they see them in different ways. And I think that's why it becomes polarizing. And it's polarizing at the greater level, once again, and I'm going to go all the way back, because we don't engage people properly and we don't engage them honestly and we don't engage their stories and who they are. All we do is just react to what we think is best for groups of people and the way best serves the way we look and the way we feel and and the safety of one community over another community. The cycle is endless and it's easier to just polarize rather than just put our hands together, put our hearts together, put our minds together and come with honesty and openness to a conversation about how laws are upheld and, and how law is enforced. Yeah, I think that's really true. I think the coming back to empathy that you mentioned there is also a, a really big part of it because, you know, again, I don't have all the statistics on hand. There are mm-hmm. some statistics in the article in Science, so if you're interested, maybe go read that. But also with the one that you're talking about, I think the common response that you might hear to that is that, no, obviously we're not saying that they have that criminal gene, but what we're saying is that they are the ones that are engaged in a culture of crime is the sort of response that I've heard when statistics like that are discussed, which I think even if that statement is true, it doesn't really go to empathize or understand with why that may be the case. Yeah. And even if that statement is true, like a culture of crime to the part where 99% of all young people in the Northern Territories, 99%? Mm. No, man. No, no, no. That, that's not possible. And if it is possible, and if it is the reality, then the question is, then why do they engage? What is it not about them, but what is it about the environments that they are being forced to live in, exist in? And and when I say exist, I mean exist rather than thrive. And why do those environments continue to contribute to that? And if they have come up with antidotes and they have come up with answers as to how to break the cycle within those environments, why aren't those answers and why aren't those antidotes and why aren't those constructs being created that do that if they have come up with answers to those problems then why generation after generation aren't those problems being solved what are the blockers Mm -hmm. because obviously there are some blockers somewhere comes back to the whole idea of what justice really is of what equity really is of what equality really is. That's a good place to shift to the final potential idea of what justice is. There are more types of justice than just these three, but these are the three that I think interesting and often discussed a lot in society. And the third type is this idea of restorative justice. I I think this is sort of often viewed as the most personal form of justice in today's society. And it's the type of justice where the person that has been wronged sets terms or steps by which the relationship between them and the person who wronged them can be repaired. It's not something you often see in law, but it's something you see with each other. If I insulted you, for example, you might set a a way that I could apologize to show my contrition and my desire to fix our relationship. One thing I'm curious about is why is this more personal type of justice the one that seems to be less discussed and less focused on in both laws and cultural discussions about justice? 
that one is the most contentious one because we don't want to be vulnerable. We don't, we think that the person that we harmed is going to respond to us in the way that we were responded to. We don't want to face who we are as the, the people who did harm. Restorative justice is, is impossible for anybody who's not willing to be honest about who they really are and who they've really been and who they continue to be. And you continue to be that person if you don't face the harm and you don't face the trauma and you don't face the upheaval that you've brought into the life of the person that you've harmed. Refusing to recognize that person, refusing to engage that conversation with that person means that you continue to uphold and affirm what it is that you did. And so restorative justice, we, we struggle with restorative justice because we don't want to face who we are, not what we did to them, but who we are, because who we are defines why it was we did to them what we did to them, whether it be because of the negative narratives we believed whether it be because of unexamined bias, and I say unexamined and unexplored rather than unconscious. To say unconscious bias is is a trapdoor. If you harm somebody, there's nothing unconscious about it. You're exactly, you know exactly what you're doing. You may not have wished them to be as harmed as much, but you definitely meant to harm. If you open your mouth and you absolutely slate somebody with expletives and you, you degrade them and you demean them with your words, you can say, oh, I didn't mean to say that. No, no, no. You meant to say that. What you didn't mean was for it to hurt them as much as you did. What you have there is unexamined feelings of hate or you have unexplored feelings of hurt. And it's the same with our biases. We don't have unconscious bias. We have unexamined bias. We have unexplored bias. And so whether it be because of any of those things, we don't want to face who we are, but we have to create spaces in which we face who we are so that we don't do what we did. We don't repeat those actions. I love that song from The Italian Job, the original one with Michael Caine. This is a self-preservation society. That's what we are. We are self-preservationists. And because we're self-preservationists, we don't create cultures in which we sit comfortably with the vulnerability of being honest about who we are. And so we do everything except get into the heart of why it is we think that way. And the reason why is because we don't engage each other honestly enough. We don't engage each other with a level of empathy. Take, for instance, like last year, last year in the midst of George Floyd, I went into a couple of schools last year to talk with students and to talk with teachers around the whole idea of race and racism and what it is that we're looking at. One school head said to me, well, you know, Eddie, we just want to have the conversation. We're thinking about how we can have the conversation in a way that people don't feel uncomfortable. And what she was basically <laughs> saying, it's like, you know, how do we have this conversation about race where we don't feel uncomfortable as white people? I said, listen, there is no comfortable way to have an uncomfortable conversation. An uncomfortable conversation is an uncomfortable conversation. But that uncomfortable conversation can be had with understanding and professionalism and empathy an mm. openness and a determination towards change. But there is no way that this is going to not be an uncomfortable conversation. But you have to lean into the discomfort in order to get to the other side of the discomfort where we can truly begin to see each other. And that is one of the great problems with restorative justice. No one is willing to lean into the discomfort of who they are. And we have to create spaces in which people 
unafraid to be honest, unafraid to be open, unafraid to be vulnerable, because they know that that vulnerability is going to be held in safe hands. It's going to be held in honest hands. It's going to be held in empathetic hands because they themselves have a commitment to changing. And I won't say force people, but implore people and insist that you lean into the discomfort of these conversations. Otherwise, what we do is we just raise children who are just trapped in our fear and trapped in our ignorance. That's fascinating. I think there's two really interesting ideas that you've sort of raised in that line of thought. There's the idea of vulnerability, and I think we could do an entirely separate podcast on (laughs) why society is not wanting to be vulnerable, why especially, it often gets discussed, men aren't... Especially men. Yeah, and I think there's a whole different podcast there, which maybe we We'll get you back. I'd love to have that chat. And hyper-masculinity. But I think the other thing that really is interesting is this idea of the necessity of uncomfortableness and being uncomfortable in order to change. I wrote an article recently for Signs called The Necessity of Being Wrong, which isn't necessarily related to justice, but it was about this idea of how can we expect to change and grow and become better and become different without acknowledging the times that we have been wrong or the times Mm. we have messed up and the times we have screwed up. And I think society nowadays hates to not even necessarily acknowledge wrongdoing, but hates to get involved in conflict and acknowledge conflict because it is about comfort above all else. That's one of the things that we really pride in society. But all change requires a bit of uncomfort. If I'm moving into a newer, bigger, better house, right, I still have to move. And that moving process is never comfortable. That's never fun, right? Like there's always change towards good things I feel requires a bit of uncomfortableness. And I think that might be part of why we struggle with these things sometimes. The problem with change is that it changes things. <laughs> change is inevitable. So change is either going to happen with you or to happen to you. Actually, it's going to happen in both ways, with you and to you. Your reaction to it and your attitude towards it is going to determine what that feels like. But change, change is inevitable. You know, by using your moving analogy, you know, the worst thing about moving is realizing the amount of junk that you have and actually how so much of that junk, it holds such nostalgia for you. There's such endearment to some of that junk. And that junk also for us in terms of change and in terms of moving from one, one attitude and, and one sphere of thinking to the next holds true. There are certain things that we believe that there is no credibility to it, but because we've believed it for generations and because our parents taught us it or because the friends that we have hold those views, we refuse to let go of them. The, the struggle with change and moving from one sphere to the next is actually letting go of so many things that we've held and not questioned. And we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to generations yet unborn. We owe it to generations who look to us who are younger, who are still impressionable because right and righteousness isn't taught, it's caught. Children don't listen to what we say. They listen to who we are. So people ain't listening to what you say. People are listening to what you do and it's what you do that affirms what you say. I think I want to ask maybe the toughest question so (laughs) far and that's... Oh Lord, you're telling me all these questions already ain't been tough. I'm not saying they've been easy, but I I think the (laughs) the toughest one, right is obviously we've discussed a lot of different types of injustice uh, you know both big and small and there's Mm -hmm. there's even more going on that we haven't even touched on almost every hot button issue nowadays has something to do with justice both big and small and that's sort of 
uh, makes me ask, you know, the big question, is there any type of justice that can solve these issues? Is there any type of justice that can solve these issues? I I honestly do believe, and I am going to go back to, I think the one person who has navigated how we navigate human inequity that I have seen do it successfully. He ended up being murdered for doing it. But the one person that I believe did it in such a way that navigated social, racial, religious, spiritual, you know, systemic injustice and inequity and equality, but brought justice in such a human and and in such a beautiful way. I know you think I'm going to say Martin Luther King and I'm not going to. It's actually Jesus Christ. It actually is Jesus Christ. And I think if we were to take the time to just take a study of his life and the way in which he navigated the world in which he lived, navigated it from the perspective of empire, navigated it from the perspective of socioeconomic, of political, of religious, of racial, on all the levels. And look at the way in which he brought equity and fairness and empathy and accountability and all the things that we've spoken about here. Look at the way in which he brought that through his life and through his ministry and the cost of doing it. I think that's another reason why we don't want to really engage in it. Because once you engage in real equity and in real justice and in real equality and in, in real restorative, restoring human beings, somebody is affected by that. Whoever it is that creates the conditions encourage that inequity. Yeah. Or whatever it is that then backfires on you. And in the case of Jesus and in the case of all people since him who have since him, who have fought for the same thing, they all pay with their lives. They all pay with their lives. And I don't think we are willing to to go that far. But I think there are ways in which we can. First of all, we have to start looking at the stories that are told about each other. Who tells those stories? Who created those stories? Who benefits from the keeping of those stories? And who doesn't benefit from the maintaining of those stories? We begin by understanding the narratives that are told about each other. And whether those narratives are true and whether those narratives are fair, what those narratives continue to perpetuate concerning the way we live with each other and the way we see each other as human beings and each other's value. And and I believe that we start there. But I, I feel that, honestly, you look at that figure of Jesus Christ, and I'm not talking about even looking at him as, you know, the son of God. No, look at him as a human being living where he lived and dealing with what he dealt with and and as a spiritual man and as a spiritual leader just look at him from that perspective forget all the questions about whether he was divine or all the rest of it no just look at him as a human being where he lived and start from there i feel that he creates an important pattern for us to look at for us examine for us to exemplify as human beings whether you are a believer in him from a Christian point of view, or whether you are not. He doesn't necessarily need you to believe in him as the son of God for you to be a better human being. He just needs you to believe that you are born to be a better human being. And these are ways in which you can be a better human being. These are the ways in which you can exemplify. These are the ways in which you can be the one that brings a justice and a, and a level of justice and a heart of justice to the world. Yeah, that is my view on that question. I think we're near the end here, but I would love to ask, you know, 
end where we began. Has has any of your thoughts changed on justice? Have any of your thoughts expanded on justice? What is justice to you? Justice to me is the protection of each other's story because each other's story is each other's life. Justice for me is the way in which we create spaces for each of us to engage life in meaningful and, and empowered ways. Justice is the way in which we protect each other from going over the ledge and the way in which we hold each other accountable for the wrong that we do. And we do it in a restorative way so that we we bypass that. Justice is the way in which we create cultures of change and cultures of excellence and cultures of moral and ethical stability. Justice is the way in which we see the value of understanding the stories that shape other people. We, I, I may not be able to walk in your shoes, but at least let me try them on. I might not be able to walk, but at least now that I understand how your shoes fit or understand that your shoes can't fit me or understand that your shoes are too big or too narrow or too wide and now understand how you walk and I now know how to protect the way you walk and I know how to respect the way you walk and that you walk. I think that's what justice is. I, I, I believe that that's what I believe that that's what justice is. That's wonderful. Thank you once again for joining us, Pastor Eddie Hippolyte. Oh man, thank you for um, allowing me time to share thoughts and conversations with you. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand.